Hey there, this is Ben Currier, self-proclaimed world's number one failure. In this podcast, we'll learn about the hardest moments my guests faced and the failures they endured on their path towards making it. I hope you enjoy. Hey, it's Ben here, and in addition to this podcast, I also teach Microsoft Excel online. Visit ExcelExposure.com for more information and use the coupon code FAILURE for 20% off of the lifetime access to the course. Stay tuned after the episode for a little bit more information as to why it's so important to improve your Excel skills and unlock your inner Excel ninja. Thanks. Hey there, friends of failure, and welcome to this week's episode of the Failure Guy podcast. I am here with Dr. Stephen Levine. Hey there, Stephen. How are things going? It's Levine, actually. Sorry, Levine. Everybody calls says Levine, so it's not a problem. <laughs> I'm sure it's a constant problem in your life. It sounds, I mean, like I imagine it happens all the time. So Charlie, sorry about that. Usually what I like to start out with is a little bit of a, a shameless self-promotion, a humble brag, whatever you'd like to call it, where you get to kind of fluff yourself up before we talk about failure, <laughs> just to give the listeners a little context. Well, I guess the, the core of it is that having grown up in a little town in the Midwest, with no idea what life would bring, but given a sense of uh, the importance of having purpose, I, through a series of missteps and positive steps, ended up as president of one of the great arts colleges in the world, California Institute of the Arts, for 29 years, uh, which is actually quite a long time, given that the average stay of a college president is just five or six years. Oh, wow. And these days, this tends to be more like one to three years, and partially as a result of all that, recently a book came out about me written by a German writer who specializes in profiles of cultural leaders. Very cool. And he wanted to do a profile of a, a cultural leader who didn't spend the time pushing himself, but spent the time helping other people uh, have the lives they wanted to have. So the book is called Stephen D. Levine, L-A-V-I-N-E, Failures, What It's All About a life dedicated to leadership in the arts. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's a perfect subject for the podcast because although it seems like I'm uh, promoting failure, what I'm really saying is that it's more of a necessary component of any type of success that we want to achieve. And that's where we learn most of our lessons. So I, I appreciate you coming on and I look forward to hearing more about you. I know just a little bit from what you've given me before, but um, maybe you can just start us out with uh, with your earlier life and we can we can trail our way through. I'm actually interested in applying to become a college president, which I don't know if I have the qualifications for. But at some point, uh, maybe after the podcast, I'll pick your brain on that. I didn't have the qualifications either, so it could happen. <laughs> oh, yeah. So how, how did you get that job? You, you, you transitioned from working in education as a teacher, right? Yeah, I was a Ph.D. in English and American literature. Uh, discovered myself not to be satisfied with uh, with my teaching career. Ended up getting a wonderful job at the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, especially supporting wor work in arts and humanities uh, designed to encourage and embrace the diversity of American culture. You have to understand that CalArts is probably the most important art school or the most important progressive art school mm -hmm. in the last 40 years and recognized around the world for that role. I didn't apply because I thought having never run anything really except <laughs> a secretary, and really the secretary was running me. I never imagined they'd look at my application. 
They did a search. The school was in terrible financial circumstances. Uh, I think it's as a result of the search, they had five businessmen. And then the process worked, which was a mix of deans and trustees. And they realized even if there was going to have to be radical change or radical cutting or something to get over this history of deficit, that if you didn't know how to value what was there, mm-hmm. you couldn't do this on business grounds alone. So they opened the search again. My name came up, uh, was dominated by someone. And after that, it moved very quickly. I think if they had not done the search first and looked at all these business types, yeah, that they wouldn't have looked at me uh, without a real financial background. I remember one of the trustees at the end of the search said to me, I know you're the candidate I'd most want to go to a movie with, uh, but I don't know if you're tough enough for this job. Yeah. And I said, I don't know if I'm tough enough for this job either. But at a foundation, a lot of what you do is find gracious ways to say no, because so many more people apply for support than you can possibly support. So I'm good at saying no. And if if for a school that's in deficit, there's probably lots of opportunity to say no. So I've got a starting point. Yeah. And he laughed and uh, we we both took a chance. Well, that's good because I think uh, I know I'm sure a lot of being president would be capital allocation and, and things about money. So it makes sense why they might want to look at some business folks. But I think in terms of leaders, you need folks who know how to lead and certainly teaching classes for that many years, uh, nine years, you said you were in education, can at least give you some examples of how to treat people in a larger situation and a little bit of public speaking and such. Uh, yes. And also a chance to see a lot of a lot of people who really were leaders and to see how they operated in the world. I remember the, the the president of the Rockefeller Foundation was a man named Dick Lyman, who had been president of Stanford. Oh wow! And I looked and I looked at the way he ran meetings, and at the core of it was the recognition that just because people didn't speak up, didn't mean they agreed with you. And so he would always bring everyone into the conversation, and really push them to say what they had to say even if it was oppositional. Mm-hmm. And that was a really critical lesson in, uh, in what goes on when you have a bunch of people in the room with diverse opinions. Yeah, especially if, if you're talking about a good leader. I've seen the opposite where a bad leader only wants you know the yes men around. So I'm glad to hear that the examples you saw were, were more positive. Yeah, I think that, that yes man uh, syndrome, uh, I mean, right now we really have sort of persuaded ourselves as a country that it takes a sociopath to run... <laughs> a major anything. Someone who'll just cut through, doesn't care what happens to people, has a sort of fixed idea, doesn't listen, keeps going. And the truth is, when you when you look at the results of those sociopaths, often what happens is there is an immediate change that looks good. Mm-hmm. Some progress is made. And then the leader leaves the next job before it's discovered that he hasn't fundamentally or she hasn't fundamentally addressed the challenges at all. Yeah. Has just done something that was a short-term, short-term. So I think most awful, awful lot of leaders uh, go on to the next job before they understood what the, understand what the last one was. There'd be exceptions, of course. Yeah. Well, you, you would be one of those uh, clearly because (laughs) of your length of time. But uh, so it seems like you got to see a little bit of both then, but at least at the Rockefeller Foundation, you got a good example of a leader who knows how to bring their best selves to that role and like really listen to people. And I think that's one of the harder things to your point is that uh, taking constructive criticism can be difficult. 
No, and absolutely. And I had a division head, Alberta Arthurs, who had also been a college president, and that you would learn a certain amount about a situation. If you're trained to be a scholar, mm -hmm. you think you really have to do in-depth everything before you act. She had been trained to be a scholar, but she'd learned at a college president that the world doesn't wait for you to cover every base. Yeah. And uh, based on partial knowledge, she would just trust her gut that this was the right way to go and was almost always right. Not always, but almost always right. And she was a great model for me as well. And going to your original point about um, listening to other people, mm -hmm. uh, I remember we had a friend who was a provost of a major university, but but she never got promoted to president which, to anywhere, which is what usually happens or is supposed to happen. And Alberta said to me about this, this woman, uh, she still takes things personally. And at the time I thought, well, that's an awful idea that's bad not to take things personally. But what she was talking about is you got to hear criticism and not see it as really being about you, but being about the situation um, and respond to it, not see it as failure because people disagree with you, uh, but see it as an opportunity to get somewhere you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah. And sometimes even for those giving the feedback, uh, it's difficult to tell someone something they don't want to hear. So the fact that they went beyond those uh, you know, comfort zone areas and, and told you should let you know that hopefully it's coming from a, a source of, of help. No, I think there's a, there's a lot of rushing into action in part because of fear of failure. Mm -hmm. If you pause to really think about the situation, uh, you get scared. Whereas if you just strike out and do something, it feels like, well, okay, I'm, I'm doing it. Uh, you don't give yourself time to think about what could be the negative consequences, but you make a lot of bad decisions that way. Yeah, no, it can go either way, but I know uh, from what I've heard of people on their on their deathbed and such, I mean, they they don't you know wish they had spent more time at the office or whatever. They wish they had pursued those things that they were kind of too scared to really approach. And so I, I always try to view fear as fuel to like go towards that thing that you're scared of and and try to push yourself outside your comfort zone. It can be certainly difficult at times to follow that, but uh, but I think it's a very important part of of persevering. In a way, my formative lesson was as a child, my mother was a gifted pianist. Uh, she wanted a concert career. She seems to have had the talent for a concert career, but she didn't have the financial support. This is now in the 50s and mm -hmm. uh, women were not so encouraged in the not in the classical music world. And she didn't have the self confidence. Or, and as a result, she never had the career she wanted mm -hmm. and was an unhappy woman. I mean, from my from from my lucky standpoint, she put it into being a wonderful mother. But but there was always I would hear her at night playing the piano and crying because she couldn't play as well in her 30s and 40s as she could play when she was really a serious pianist pursuing a concert career. And it 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 was a real lesson in the possibility of failure and the consequences of not being able to act on uh, what you have it in you to do. And then that was sort of doubled by the fact that I, I took it as my responsibility to cheer her up. And um, I could little bits, but someone who's deeply unhappy, you know, a six-year-old kid is not going to succeed in permanently cheering up. And so I felt like a failure that my mother loved me. I loved my mother and I couldn't do for her what I thought. So I, I always carried around 
this fear of failure that in a way that I would turn out to be my mother, yeah. that I would have a setback and that setback would be the end. I wouldn't find another way forward in a way. A lot of my life was about overcoming that, that fear. And it took some setbacks to get beyond that fear. Yeah. And did she just have um, uh, the unhappiness due to it not working out? Or do you think she had other anxieties? Was she a, a, an anxious person? Would you say? No, she was an anxious person in general. Yeah. No, no, no question. Cause I, uh, I've taken that on from my mom as well. And, uh, and it can be difficult to go through those things because, you know, seeing people be anxious, it's certainly around money, uh, which was something that my mom was, uh, was anxious around, uh, gives you an, sometimes a slanted view of what you should think of the topic and you gotta like work out a lot of those things. So it's at least good that it seems like you've, you've realized that hopefully it wasn't your job to make her happy, or at least uh, that's a lot to put on a kid and uh, have given yourself a little bit of grace, hopefully as you grew up. It took a long time to get there. In fact, this book that was just written about me helped me get there. It, it had been my whole life still feeling the consequences of just feeling like I failed my mother, that she was a wonderful person and I should have been able to do more. And yeah. I, I didn't. And it wasn't until I really was encouraged by this profile writer uh, who did the book to think about my whole life uh, that I realized the sort of impossibility of what I took on. It's a really interesting side effect of having a book written about you is you actually learn stuff about yourself. Yeah, you have to go back and dig into some of those details that you might not think about unless you're you're probed into it. So uh, how, what was the book writing process? You had to just delve into the history of your own life? Try to explain that. He first asked for me to send him everything I'd ever written, anything that existed that was written about me, wow. my scrapbooks as a child, uh, as much documentation as he, we could generate. And he found even more online that I didn't know that I didn't know existed. Then he, he was German. He flew to Los Angeles and interviewed me every day for about a month for sort of between sort of four and five hours a day mm -hmm. uh, until we were just with prepared questions for each day. Wow. It's interesting. As I, as I entered into the book, I really thought, and the book I wanted was actually not so much about me. It was about um, those 29 years at CalArts. Yeah. My wife and I knew the with a new president, things would change. And we thought there ought to be some record of what the accomplishment was of those years because it was such an exceptional run and the school really prospered during that time. But he was much more interested in the values that framed my work and my life and the sort of, in a way, deep story of where the resources came from to be successful at Cal, Cal was still a justification. Mm -hmm. It was my major achievement in life, but he was, he was not interested in the details of that so much as he was interested in what allowed me to do it. Yeah. I imagine that the, uh, the presidential side was a bit more public. So perhaps he found more value in the private story, but it's interesting that just a level of dedication to learning about someone is, is certainly impressive. I can't imagine you feeling like you deserved such, <laughs> such a uh, deep dive, but maybe, maybe you feel like it was, uh, it was certainly something that at least you've earned. I was, I was skeptical about the whole thing. 
when I saw the the draft manuscript, I could hardly make myself read it. Mm. I, he gotten me to be very honest about my doubts and insecurities, and I hated seeing them on the page. In retrospect, and I wonder what use the book was. Yeah, uh, I could see what what use a book what was that was about what we had done at CalArts. I didn't see what the use was of a book about my life. But given conversations I've had afterward, in fact, it's the honesty about admitting my doubts, admitting my ignorance, mm-hmm. all the things that leaders don't let on that are really going on behind the scenes that has turned out to be useful. Uh, and especially sort of young people entering the not-for-profit world, young people starting in their first leadership jobs. It helps you get over a lot of illusions about, well, there must be people out there who really know exactly what they're doing. And what do I know that I could possibly do this? And one of the lessons of a long life is that everybody is making, there probably are a few people who know exactly what they're doing, but most people are just making it up as they go along. Yeah. And are going home being afraid that maybe it's not right except for the sociopaths who are sure they're right. True. And that's just as bad as spending your time being afraid that you're right or you're wrong. <laughs> so I think the, the book ends up actually being, in a funny way, a useful text on leadership, although I, I didn't imagine it that way. Yeah, to inspire leaders who maybe are lacking courageousness or, or just think that they're not built that way. Yeah, and and to, you know, you, you go into a job well, let's say college president is the job I know. And every day you're confronted with people who know more about their specific area than you can possibly know. The finance people know more about finance. The physical plant people know more about physical plant. The teachers know more about the progress of their disciplines. Uh, the board members know more about how the world works. Everybody is, in, in a way, is, is, a, is a specialist expert. And you're this generalist, feels like amateur. Um, and then if you have illusions about other people really knowing what they're doing and you put that on yourself as well, you can't help but end up with a kind of imposter syndrome. What what am I doing here in this world of experts? Yeah. Or even shepherding all those students, too, as well into the next steps of their lives. You're having a massive impact. Absolutely. Without ever having studied child psychology or developmental. I mean, all these things you, I mean, the student affairs people know more about student life. <laughs> One of the powerful lessons, which unfortunately I had learned before coming to college, was the importance of listening mm-hmm. uh, and not being threatened. That maybe some people really do know a lot more than you know and know what they're doing. And you ought to seek them out and get them to tell you the truth and know that because you're president, people are going to resist telling you what they if it's negative, what they really think. And you have to encourage people Mm -hmm. to tell you if they think you're off off base, even if it means you go home feeling terrible, (laughs) that you thought you were doing a good job and your ex says, no, no, you got this wrong entirely. Yeah, it can be difficult, I imagine. It's interesting, one one of my vice presidents went to a higher education training program at Harvard. And one of the questions they were asked was, what do you do if, if you're, you see your president is about to make a major mistake and everyone in the class except him said, the question is, do you tell him? And everyone in the class except him said, of course you don't tell him that you get fired if you tell him. And my guy said, which is why he was, I, why I liked hiring him, uh, said, well, of course you tell him you're, you're getting, you're engaged in malfeasance if you let your 
your leader do something that's stupid and is going to hurt the institution that you're both trying to help. But that means you have to have a leader who's willing to hear when he's wrong or she's wrong. I think uh, the leaders who've most impressed that upon me are those who have more of an open book kind of policy where they're sharing things and, and making sure it's easy to share with each other rather than berating those who don't agree with them. It's it's better to have a, a sense of open and honest communication, like I call sometimes refer to it as radical transparency, but where you can actually feel like your job isn't on the line, because I agree, it's sad that so many people don't correct leadership over their problems because of the fear. And also because uh, they have their own imposter syndrome of how can I tell this the leader what to do? <laughs> I'm not that. Exactly. I think the other key ingredient, I read, I read a book once, um, Biography of Truman, in which the author said True, President Truman was not really very smart, but that you don't have to be very smart to be president of the United States. What you have to, because you're going to be around people, everyone you deal with is going to know more about the subject you're talking about than, the, than you know as president. You're again, you're the generalist, even if you're president of the United States. What you need to know is what you believe. What what is what is what is your core values? You have to have something you can refer every decision in some way to what your core sort of understanding of the world is. Yeah. Without that, you're just swamped with impossible decisions. Yeah, and uh, Truman had a, one of the more impossible decisions in terms of the, the nuclear bomb, of course. Ab- absolutely, I mean, God, to be faced with that decision. For, for me, the the guiding principles turned out to be, and it probably goes back to my mother, believing in equal, equal opportunity and believing that given the diversity of the United States, we needed to do much more to create real equal opportunity. And so that gave a kind of through line. And, I, it, and, and to me, that just seems indisputable. Yeah. Although I guess there's a lot, a lot of Republicans these days who dispute it. Yeah. Uh, but at least, at least for me, it, it seemed totally indisputable. And so it gave you a solid ground on, on which to act. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember in the, in the first weeks on the job, everybody was, there hadn't, there had been a long interim between the past president and me, sort of almost five years. Oh, wow. With, a, with an acting, during which they got deeper and deeper deficit. Mm-hmm. That's a long story of its, of its own. Everybody was terrified. I mean, here was this great institution. It was failing financially. They were struggling to do good work in their jobs. Mm-hmm. Everybody else had become everyone's enemy because they felt if someone got something, I'm not getting something because the pot is not growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my first couple of months were I was just swamped with people coming to tell me what was wrong. Yeah. And it was kind of paralyzing just just to be there. And somehow in a conversation, I think with another college president, someone said to me, well, have you told the faculty why you took the job and what you came there to accomplish? And I, I said, no, no, I told the search committee that, but I haven't had a chance to talk to the faculty. I, I'm listening to them. And they said, well, how, how could you expect them to support your point of view if you don't actually tell them your point of view? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that changed everything to to make that turn. And then when, as I thought about that, then I knew the answer to a lot of those sub questions because mm-hmm. I had something to, to refer it to. And in fact, um, in this situation where there wasn't a free dollar to spend on anything, 
uh, a trustee came to me and said, I'll give you $25,000 to do whatever you is most important you think for the future of the school. It just can't be anything we're currently doing. And this was my only area of where I had the finances to act on my, dis on my discretion. And with that money, I started a program in which our students were going out into the neighborhoods of Los Angeles where the schools were poor mm -hmm. and the kids were sort of economically deprived, which meant main, often African-American and Latino neighborhoods, and offering after-school arts programs. And it was a sort of direct intervention and equal opportunity. But equally, it was, it was I wanted our students, we were mostly white institution, to understand more of the facts of life mm -hmm. and to be able to see the way, in a way, 50% of America lives. Yeah. And to, and to realize, even if they came from deprived backgrounds, once you're in a college, you're in a kind of privileged situation. You're just there to improve yourself. Um, and uh, so I had that double motive. And then once we were, we were doing it, I realized the other thing this was going to do is um, if we wanted new supporters, we had to demonstrate that we were making a difference in the world. Yeah. And it, it, it should have been enough to say we're graduating great artists. And for some people, that was enough. Mm -hmm. But suddenly there was something very concrete and specific. You could say we've got 40 different programs around the Los Angeles Basin offering opportunity to un, un, underserved kids. And suddenly we looked not like this elitist separate institution, but like a citizen of the city we live in. And that ended up helping to solve all the other problems. <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. I mean, uh, giving back is, is obviously hugely important. How did the person who let you allocate the 25,000 react to that decision? At, at first, he didn't understand it, mm -hmm. but, but he understood that He'd given me the offer, and it was for me to do. Over the, over the years, he took tremendous pride in it because it was so clear all the good things that came out of it. Yeah, um, I, I remember other some of the people on the staff thought, well, if you're going to start recruiting a more diverse student body, what are you doing going to the poorest neighborhoods where, where kids are not going to be able to afford to come to CalArts? Uh, and I said, this is not a recruitment program. Mm -hmm. We're recruiting for the idea that you have value and you go to college. But I thought we were recruiting for community college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And first, instead of for an expensive private institution. But of course, you discover wildly gifted kids. They discover that you have gifted teachers. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you've got diverse student body that you, did, you didn't... In, you didn't think you were you were gonna even approach. Yeah, and and the students get that real life, real world immersion that they probably uh, lack. So at the very least, that's what you're giving to your own students. But yeah, I mean, uh, I can only imagine how important it was for some of those inner city kids to really have that outlet and to be able to explore a side of themselves they might not have ever uh, been encouraged to do. So so much turns on. The belief that you have value, mm -hmm. that you have that you have something to give the world, and a lot of kids are are told they don't have any value at all, mm -hmm. or are treated in a way that suggests they don't have any value at all. Yeah, uh, I, we, we it's interesting. We, I was last night. I had dinner with a CalArts parent who saw who from Brazil who saw this youth program in Los Angeles and said. 
Will you help me start one in in Rio de Janeiro? Well, anyway, in Brazil, not Rio de Janeiro. Mm-hmm. And um, he was telling me stories about these kids from the favelas who have absolutely nothing, who went for a couple of years. We actually brought them to Los Angeles as part of this and gave them this, put them in the programs that our young kids were, the, the kids, we, the neighborhoods were in, whose experience was not all that different than these kids living in the favelas. And he was telling me these stories of this one is a doctor now, this one's a nurse, uh, this one is having a successful career. As a, and these were kids who nothing was supposed to happen for. None of them had ever traveled outside of their neighborhood before. One of them told uh, this parent, you let me realize dreams I didn't even know I had. That's a really poignant statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was lovely to, to hear it. Well, that's anyway. I don't know if we're talking about failure enough here, are we? <laughs> no, we're fine. I'm happy to hear about anything uh, in your life, but I, I like to hear the the successes that also emerged, kind of haphazardly, or at least uh, things like that, where you wouldn't expect to to have that kind of an impact, and you get the opportunity to uh, to provide that. I know, growing up, um, I went to an all guys Catholic high school, but I did try to do all sorts of community service and help out, and give back, and the more you spend time with those in need, the more you realize just how tough life can be. And so giving them any kind of a support or uplifting or letting them know that there is a different form of life out there is super important. Yeah. And, and you could see the difference between eventually probably a third of all our students were teaching at least one afternoon a week somewhere in Los Angeles. They, they liked it too, I guess, I imagine. I, I think they, there was probably double. One, they they liked it. Two, they got work-study money for doing it. Mm-hmm. Three, they got off campus. Yep. But but you would see the effect on them. They would always, our students would always talk about how their art was getting better. That by, have, by having to convey it to someone else. Yes. It can be really, it can be tough when you learn something to go back to before you learned it and figure out the best way to convey that to someone else. And yeah, you can definitely learn new things about your own approach, but also learn from them as they as they find their way as well. And and then over time, as I learned about more about artists' careers, many young artists support themselves by some version of teaching. So without knowing it, we had created the only program CalArts had that could give teach students a track record of teaching. Yeah, uh, such that they could they could get jobs as teaching artists uh, after they graduated. Again, not, we didn't know we were doing that when we did this. <laughs> yeah, you just have one idea and it spirals into, I mean, at least the the benefits that you plan for happen to be just a small subset of many different benefits that, uh, that it, it brings about. And I know when I was at the Rockefeller Foundation, I came to believe that if a grant only did what it said it was gonna do, it was probably a failed grant. Because after all, all you've done is give people enough money to do what they said they were going to do. Uh, and for everyone you you gave that opportunity, you were get 20 people, 30 people, you weren't giving that opportunity. So you're saying like a, a scholarship or some direct uh, tuition covering type of program? Yeah. It's, or, or someone wanted to do some kind of performance or someone wanted to make a new film. Or uh, a lot of it was money that went into artists actually making things. Okay. But but if that if that activity of making something opened up a whole new line in the artist's career, well, then you thought, well, that OK, this this grant actually meant something. It's it's it paid for this. 
but it also started that. Yeah. And after after a while, when I got to CalArts, I took that as a kind of measure of our programs only did what they said they were going to do. That was kind of the minimum. You, the course had to do that. Yeah. But if it, but if it was a really good program, it would turn out to have side effects that, like we've just been discussing. Yeah, beneficial ones. I'll, I'll give you another example. We sure for my very first my very first years, I was aware that we were bringing guest artists from all over the world. Many were coming to Los Angeles. Uh, the only place they would be is on our campus. And they would leave town without the rest of Los Angeles being exposed to the fact that they were ever there. Mm-hmm. Plus, we were tra- we were educating our students to make quite experimental work. And there weren't very many outlets for that kind of experimental work in Los Angeles. And I thought, if, if we think it's worth educating our students to make this kind of work, we ought to be concerned that there's no institution in Los Angeles that presents that kind of work. So for years, I tried to raise the money to start um, a little off-campus theater and gallery. All I was looking for, all I was looking for, was a warehouse. I wasn't looking for anything fancy. Uh, I could never raise the money for the warehouse. wasn't didn't seem sparkling enough. Suddenly, I had a chance for us to. Be, to, to uh, Frank Gehry had designed a new concert hall in Los Angeles for the Los Angeles Philharmonic. I had an opportunity for us to build our own theater underneath this this grand concert hall. Wow! And so instead of the, instead of a million dollar warehouse, uh, we we were building a sort of twenty million dollar theater. I sort of made the bet that look, we're going to be in the landmark building for Los Angeles. We're going to be in the center of the establishment downtown, whereas up till now we've been in the suburbs, mm-hmm. that it is that it is worth the extra money to be here. Well, doing that started a whole other set of possibilities for Cal. Suddenly, we were a college, but we were also a professional arts organization. Yeah. And there are lots of there are lots of donors who don't aren't really persuaded by education, but are but are persuaded by museums and galleries. And and so there was that. And then we would commission work for the for the gallery space and let the artists use the facilities at CalArts to make the work. And suddenly our students were getting exposed to these other artists mm-hmm. who were working side by side with them. It just went on and on that way. Yeah. Uh, international, international companies performed in this space. Uh, and suddenly people were leaving their companies to come apply to CalArts once they were exposed to this. So it, again, it opened up a whole horizon of activity. I imagine even just seeing the, uh, the sales side or like the, the, how, how art gets uh, displayed, performed and shown to the world, having direct insight into that as a student is probably hugely helpful for when they get uh, out of school. I, I think there was that too. I think there was also when you present work on campus, sort of the stakes are too low. Mm-hmm. If suddenly you're presenting in a landmark building, uh, you push yourself to a higher higher level. And then even more important, because I didn't intend this entire, and chiefly as a, I thought alumni, but not our current students. So suddenly we had a way to help our alumni uh, with their careers. Um, and it's hard to get started as an artist. It's, yeah takes a while to, to, to catch on if you ever do. Um, and then we were bringing artists that our students needed to see uh, who could influence their work. Artists from all over the world who were not willing to be teachers 
in under normal circumstances. Yeah. But we insi we insisted that every artist who we presented also did something on campus with our students. And so it, it yeah, it's interesting. That's really cool. And also, I mean, just a life in the arts, I imagine, comes with a greater percentage failure rate than most in terms of at least catching on or getting to the level that you'd hope to get. So, you know, there's also just that preparation for that's kind of a reality that that you need to deal with and, and see from both sides. You know, being, being an artist is a little bit the odds of a, being a professional athlete. <laughs> yeah. That you could have just enormous talents and still not quite get there. For many reasons. Yeah. It's a funnel that's big at the top and then a, kind of gets narrow. Although you find out in part because artist is almost, it's almost a calling as much as it's an occupation. Uh -huh. uh, people do it because they have to do it. It's just, it's so fundamentally who they are. And there's, there's good data that shows, well, most artists don't ever become wealthy or famous. Most are able to sustain them. A huge number at least are able to sustain themselves at a kind of middle-class level. Mm -hmm. It takes longer to get there. Yeah. But, um, but they're entre entrepreneurial and they they find a way. Yeah. And this actually bring this actually brings us back to the subject of failure. Because one of the things we had to teach our kids at CalArts is people not liking your work, you gotta learn something from that. But that's not failure. That's just a situation. Uh, if you're doing something that no one else has ever done before, it's not a surprise that people who see it don't know what to do with it. Absolutely. In fact, that you even have critics. Who, whose job it is to judge your stuff, uh, you're going to have to find a way to be okay with it when it doesn't resonate with, you know, whoever uh, just doesn't get it. Yeah. And, and then if you think about actors and dancers who, when they aud audition are mostly turned down yeah. and you're, it, and it's, it's not something you made that's being turned down. It's you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I mean, it's just, so we spent a lot of time basically saying, unless you're failing, you're probably not aiming high enough. Yeah, you, you have to act on, on the sort of deep aspirations if you're going to make a difference. But that that's a hard lesson. It's easier <laughs> as you get older to, to understand that it is rough when you know you're talented, uh, your peers know you're talented and you go out there and people say, what the hell is this? Yeah. Or the or the myriad of issues in terms of even just getting yourself out there, uh, self-promotion and things like that, which might not come naturally to some of these people who might be more introverted when it comes to their art now have to promote themselves and things like that. And there's all sorts of ways you can, you can struggle through. I, I imagine all those parts of the process. No. And I, I think I, I realized over time that we had to devote more energy to preparing our students for all that collateral activity that you're right, that many of them are not temperamentally prepared to be the sale. They're say to be salesmen of themselves. Mm -hmm. But in fact, at some level, you don't have a choice that no one else is going to be your salesman unless you, you do it yourself. And so we gradually built more and more in the faculty at first thought we were really distracting them from perfecting their art by teaching them these other things. Yeah. But, but to me, it was giving them an opportunity to realize their art. Absolutely. And be encouraged hopefully to, to find themselves and, and figure out what, their art means to the world. Uh, what version of yeah. art did you, uh, I believe your education was in training for art or what was your um, background? I, I, no, I was, I was a scholar of uh, 
18th century English and 20th century American literature. I played trumpet and I knew a lot about film, but I was not an artist and I, I, would, ne I, I would never claim to be. I was fortunate actually that my wife is an artist, a very gifted artist, Janet Sternberg. And she could tell me things that I didn't know. <laughs> I mean, she, she, so some of the some of the most experimental, powerful artists at Cal Arts, as we tried to make changes, were the most resistant to change. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, this is so damned annoying. <laughs> and she said, well, of, of, of course they're resisting change. They have found a place that's letting them, it's supporting them to make the kind of art they're devoted to making. They don't know that the the Cal Arts you're promising for the future is going to have a place that supports their kind of work any longer. So you would resist too in that situation. Yeah. And of course, and of course, that's true. That's true. Well, I think that's a great uh, a segue into um, something as a guest you get uh, is a get out of fail free card, which is much like the Monopoly card, but you get to use it to pursue a uh, career hobby passion. Maybe one of those arts that you're not great at. If you had a get out of fail free card, is there something you would have cashed that in to pursue some specific thing that you thought you might have resisted because you're not good enough or, there, or that failure was too prevalent? Well, that's, well, that's a really interesting proposition. In a way, since I retired from CalArts in 2017, I was offered that card. Oh, nice. I, I, was, I was always driven as much by this social vision of what America ought to be as I was by, to me, art was part of how you got there, yeah. but by this social vision. And out of the blue, after I left CalArts, I was hired indirectly by the German government to start a center in Los Angeles that would bring thinkers from Germany and thinkers from the United States, uh, thinkers, politicians, journalists, people concerned with the future of democracy, would bring them together towards solving this problem of which is everywhere in the world right now, the kind of loss of faith in democracy, that it, that it works on this temptation toward authoritarian governments, the kind of stuff that President Trump represented. And suddenly I was getting to act directly on the social vision that had underpinned my educational vision. Uh, so I feel like I got that get out of failure. But it sounds like an even more um, tough ask, the challenge you're trying to uh, accomplish there. So I imagine you won't necessarily have the card that you can throw down when things uh, don't don't necessarily go as easily as you want, because there's a lot of divisiveness uh, these days. There's a lot of misinformation and just craziness in the world. That sounds like a very worthwhile effort, um, but also sounds like something that would be certainly difficult. Well, I, I always thought after I retired, I would go back to school and learn what I I'd start all over again now that I was old enough to appreciate mm -hmm. what I was being taught. And, and in a funny way, that's the indirect effect of this. Suddenly I'm reading political theory, politi all these things that I, I didn't do it when I was a student. Yeah. Because I thought if I'm going to have, if I'm going to have a chance, I'm going to have to focus on literature. And suddenly I'm reading history and political economy. And uh, it's just great. It's a, uh, my whole world has gotten uh, bigger all, uh, in, a, in a way I could never have anticipated. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, my, my next question was going to be, what's the, the next thing you're going to fail at? And it sounds like uh, it could be something in that realm. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> probably will fail at it. But you make 
Actually, you don't fail. What you do is you... As a stepping stone, basically. Yeah, you make a little incremental contribution. Mm-hmm. I, I, I believe in small steps forward. Absolutely. And and certainly the focus of, of the failure is not to um, to promote thinking negatively, but more as realizing that, you know, if you're living in some of those mistake times or area thing, you know, times where things aren't working out, is that that's what is a requirement to get anywhere in this world is to, you know, to fail at least a bunch of times <laughs> before you get to, you know, where you need to go. Yeah, you got You got to face the hard stuff. And that means you run a risk of failing. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, you, you don't get anywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Sort of. No, it's uh, it's I wish I'd known all this when I was a lot younger. <laughs> yeah. And even following it while knowing it is still not easy either. You know, just having that uh, that persistence takes a bit of time, takes some some working through. Absolutely. Absolutely true. And so before I ask where people can find you, is there any last thoughts on failure you want to make sure that we didn't uh, miss or any concepts or things that you uh, just wanted to expand upon before I get to just telling people where to where to reach out to you or see or find you these days? I'll, I'll just say one brief thing and then I'll tell you where to find me. The brief thing is confronted with something that seems impossible, that where you're bound to fail, you just take a small step forward. Mm-hmm. And that that and, and you just keep taking small steps forward. Incremental success. Incremental success. And where to find me is probably the best place is we, we, we put up a website around around the book, actually, called uh, www. Stephen D. Levine with Levine is L-A-B-I-N-E dot mm-hmm. com. And there's a lot of additional material there that uh, people could use to track me down. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll make sure to put that into the show notes. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Uh, you certainly have a life that could be explained over many podcasts, because I'm sure we just barely scratched the surface of it. But I do appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and uh, and your experiences. It's been fabulous. I enjoyed, I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Would you like to be more efficient, productive, and confident in your work at the office? Over 750 million people worldwide use Excel, yet it's still a misunderstood and frequently misused tool. That's why I created Excel Exposure, so you can work smarter and not harder. The Excel Essentials course gives you over five hours of in-depth video lessons, plus it comes along with my master workbook which has every function, shortcut, and all the examples to follow along. Investopedia actually included my course in their list of six best online Excel classes of 2021, saying it's best for visual learners. As someone who's an expert in failure, I can certainly teach you and your team how to avoid spreadsheet failures and create bulletproof Excel documents. Use the coupon code FAILURE for 20% off of the lifetime access price. Visit ExcelExposure.com for more information and also my existing award-winning free training. Thanks for joining me on the Failure Guy podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to tell somebody. And don't forget, always try to fail it till you nail it. Till next time.